Coming up today, Amit and Matt Reynolds talk us through the COVID-19 vaccine breakthrough and Natasha explores the weird world of pandemic office Christmas parties. Welcome to the Wired UK podcast, your essential weekly catch-up on all the big stories in tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, James Templeton, and joining me this week are Amit Koala. Hello. Natasha Bernal. Hello. And Matt Reynolds. Hello. This was the week when the Xbox Series X and Xbox Series S and PS5 went on sale in most parts of the world. Despite plenty of hype, Microsoft and Sony's next-gen consoles launched with a confusing lack of next-gen games to play on them. The EU hit Amazon with formal antitrust charges this week over its treatment of the 150,000 European merchants selling goods through its website. The Commission says Amazon breached competition rules by using non-public data it gathers on sales on its website to boost its own label products and services. And it was also the week when we moved a step closer to mining on the moon. Moonrock is about 45% oxygen, but the remainder is iron, aluminium and silicon. And a British firm called Metallasis has shown you can remove nearly all of that oxygen, leaving behind useful metal, metal alloys that could be very, very handy for building on the moon. So useful, in fact, that the European Space Agency has given the firm a contract to begin developing the technology further. And finally, this was the week when TikTok began a legal challenge against the Trump administration, which it says has been ghosting the app's lawyers. The video sharing platform was ordered to sell to a US company or be banned with a deadline of November the 12th, but it says it has had no feedback from the US government in two months. It's almost as if Trump's TikTok ban was just a big stage show with no thought behind it, right? You're so cynical, James, but but yes, it does it does appear that he uh, got distracted and, and moved on to something else. Uh, so uh, I, I suspect it will probably remain that way. So it, we'll we'll see what that means for TikTok in the US going forwards. It must just be an extraordinary situation for TikTok as a company and its lawyers sitting there waiting for potentially a, a very angry Donald Trump to decide. I'm just going to ban you. And then chaos could ensue. Or, he, as you say, he could just forget about it for the next few months and nothing will happen. It must be very odd. Yeah, and it's um, it must be also odd for Oracle, who are the other side of the deal, not knowing whether or not this you know significant acquisition is actually going to go ahead or not. Um, although acquisition, you know, whatever the, the structure of the deal was, it wasn't strictly an acquisition, the actual deal that ended up getting struck. Um, but it's also, I think... I think the real damage it's done is is this idea of, and similar to Brexit in a way, this idea of it being a safe place to do business when the the, the head of a, a government can just be like, actually, no, you have to sell now. <laughs> it doesn't really encourage you to set up your business in that territory in future. One of the unlikeliest deals in modern corporate history, Oracle owning a sort of stake in a sort of part of TikTok, if it even ends up happening. Uh, we'll see. Okay, what did we learn this week? Matt Reynolds. So I found out about the time that humans almost went extinct altogether. So this is about 74,000 years ago. A supervolcano called Toba exploded and it dimmed the sun for several years, deposited loads and loads of ash and possibly 
lowered global temperatures by quite a uh, serious degree and it probably starved most homo sapiens to death. Uh, Total numbers dipped below 10,000. Some people actually say that there's maybe as few as 40 breeding pairs of homo sapiens on earth at that time and it took tens of thousands of of years for the population to bounce back. So think how different the podcast would be if you know we had gone extinct altogether. Think how different it would be. Or how different would it be? It would be very different. Coming up today, there probably nothing. Wouldn't. <laughs> Just more silence. The grim rumblings of super volcanoes. Thank you very much, Matt. What did you learn this week, Natasha? Oh, I feel terrible having to follow that. Um, basically, I, I learned today, um, well, not today, this week, about crosswords, more about crosswords, because you can't know enough about them. So the Saturday crossword is actually the hardest puzzle of the week. Contrary to popular belief, the Sunday puzzles are midweek difficulty, not the hardest. Mondays have the most straightforward clues, and Saturday clues are the most vague or involve the most wordplay. So I also wanted to add that um, my crossword prowess has really reached new heights this week my record is seven minutes 44 um and i've not yet been able to beat that that was that happened on a monday um so yeah proving it true already you're right it was quite difficult to follow matt reynolds as well <laughs> um, never mind uh oh well Amit, what have you got for us um so as you probably know in the uk it is illegal to kill swans because they all belong to the queen uh, this sounds like one of those things that's made up or like an urban rumour, but I spent about 20 minutes earlier reading about it and apparently it is, is true, although she only exercises her rights to the swans immediately around Windsor Castle and along the Thames. So if you've got a swan elsewhere in the UK, she probably won't mind if you, you know, whatever you want to do with it, it's fine. Um, but so, what you know, while they're kind of um, esteemed in the UK, in the United States, they're actually considered a pest. Um, they were originally brought in from Europe in the late 1800s to add flair to American estates, but meat swans are now consuming large amounts of aquatic vegetation needed by native waterfowl, and they're contaminating the water with their feces, which may contain E. coli. So, uh, regal symbol in the UK, uh, ravenous pest in the US. I should add that it is not the position of Wired UK or its parent company, Condé Nast, um, <laughs> to direct you to do, quote, whatever you like to a swan. Please treat them with respect. Uh, I learned this year that it was uh, this uh, this week <laughs> that it was Singles Day on November 11th. This is the annual Chinese shopping bonanza. Retail giant Alibaba said it raked in 75 billion dollars this year over just a few days. Even Singles Day is a day, but it's actually a week. Um, but that was a 26% increase in on sales in 2019. So so much for a pandemic-related retail slump. So I found out that the unofficial holiday actually traces its origins back. It's a little murky, but it's thought that it traces its origins back to a university campus in China in 1993, where four single male students decided to create a special day to celebrate their singledom. And they chose November 11th because it's four ones, the 11th month of the year and the 11th day of the 11th month. So one, 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 one. Um, That's now trademarked by Alibaba and has turned into a huge celebration of consumerism. There we go. Uh, For the final time, I need to remind you all of our limited period offer to subscribe to Wired magazine. We've got a special subscription offer for podcast listeners. You can get the current issue of Wired magazine for the ludicrously low introductory price of £1. You then get the next six issues for the low, low price of £19. That's more than a year of brilliant Wired journalism for just £20. 
as I said, it's a limited time offer, but this is the final week. So if you want to subscribe, do it now or forever hold your peace. It's only available to people in the UK, but if you love the podcast and want to support what we do, then why not give the magazine a try? Head to wired.uk forward slash P-O-D-S-U-B-1. That's wired.uk forward slash pod sub one. It's been a big week for COVID-19 news this week. It's been a big week for COVID-19 news every single week this year. But finally, we have some good news. Let's talk through it. Vaccine news, Matt Reynolds. That's right. So it's been a a year of bad news, really, as as you indicated, James. But this week, we had one of the most promising glimmers of hope that we've seen so far in the whole pandemic. And this came in the form of early results from a COVID-19 vaccine trial. So this vaccine, uh, which is being produced by the pharmaceutical firms Pfizer and BioNTech, was around 90% effective. So that was the headline figure that everyone was shouting about. And it's really quite exciting because it's the most promising result we've had so far from the many vaccine trials that are going on around the world right now. There's been a bit of a kerfuffle amongst all the celebration that yes this seems like hugely hugely positive news but we're not used to scientific results being announced via press release with no peer-reviewed science behind them especially when it's something as important as this so what exactly do these results mean and what should people be taking from this news sure so it's it's a good point so The first thing people need to know is that these aren't final results and they haven't been peer reviewed. So um, other scientists haven't gone through the the data and um, checked it. You know, independent scientists from different research organisations haven't gone through that process. It usually accompanies scientific publication in in journals. What this is, however, is an early analysis of data from the phase three clinical study that the vaccine is currently going through. And, And phase three is the very large part of clinical trials where they give it to a bunch of people and basically try and find out whether this vaccine works. Now, although this news was released in a press release and not a scientific paper, the analysis was conducted by an independent data monitoring committee that had been set up at the start of the study. So it's not like this is a pharmaceutical company saying, wow, look at us, we're great. And we have had some of that actually in this pandemic. You might have seen some of the testing results, some of those only ever really, um, people talk about the accuracy of their testing. Uh, Quite often those results uh, were released in press release before and they weren't independent. So this is actually by an independent uh, data board. So it's not the results themselves out from Pfizer, although Pfizer was announcing the news. More importantly, here's what the analysis actually found. So how the study worked is they gave half of the participants, that's about 20,000 people, so there's 40,000 people, a little bit over that in total, gave half of those participants the vaccine candidate and the other half they had a placebo. And what they did is they waited until 94 people across both of those groups, so 94 out of those 40,000 people had confirmed cases of COVID-19. And then what they did is they looked at those 94 people and said, okay, so did they have the vaccine or did they have the placebo? And they found that 90% of these people were in the placebo group. So in other words, there were 10 times as many cases in the placebo group as you would see as there were in the vaccine group. And this suggests that the vaccine prevents 90% of people from contracting COVID-19. So a really, really exciting result. As soon as this news came out, people got extraordinarily excited. We saw a timetable from the government in the UK suggesting that we might be free and clear of this virus uh, 
at all levels of the population by the summer, if we're lucky. I mean, but, but how excited should we actually be about these results? How realistic is it that this vaccine will become available and will be effective quickly and end this in the coming months? So these are very exciting results, but I'm not quite so optimistic to say that everyone's going to be vaccinated by summer. I think it's quite likely that we'll have quite a slow rollout of this vaccine because it takes a while to produce. And also it's very important we get it into vulnerable populations, into you know, clinical staff, um, in hospitals. So I think it's going to be a much more progressive rollout than some of those reports suggested. But that said, in terms of the core vaccine itself, this is really, really exciting news. So a 90% efficacy rate is significantly higher than what we might have expected from this kind of vaccine. So to put that into perspective, the seasonal flu vaccine, this varies because the formulation changes depending on the the flu strains that are circulating in the population, Um, but it tends to only be between 40 and 60% uh, have 40 and 60% efficacy. Now, the US FDA, the Food and Drugs Administration, had set a much lower bar of 50% efficacy for this COVID-19 vaccine vaccine to secure approval. So actually, if you compare, the the FDA was saying, okay, if it's at least 50% effective, then we're happy to approve it, you know, given that it it passes all these other tests, then actually this 90% result looks much, much better than what we might um, have hoped for. Yeah, also to set that into context, say measles is around 97%, you know, effective. So this is certainly on the upper end of what you'd hope for from a vaccine. It's also really reassuring that the Data Monitoring Committee, remember this is the uh, independent body that has crunched this data for Pfizer, um, has not reported any safety concerns or any significant safety concerns. So of the 20,000 people who have received the vaccine, none of those appear to have had reported any major adverse effects. And that's really, really important too. Now, the next major step will be a final analysis when there have been 164 cases reported across the study. And that's when we'll start to get a really, really uh, good sense of, okay, how far away are we from potentially approving this? So there's there's still a few more steps to come down the line before it's ready to go. One of the um, one of the good things about the vaccine, the, the, you know, the, the apparent results from Pfizer is that not only is this kind of a, a, a vaccine for coronavirus, it's also a completely new type of vaccine, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. So how how vaccines work in principle or you know across the whole uh, you know group of vaccines is what they essentially do is they expose the immune system to a disease in order to provoke the body um, to produce antibodies against it so they'll recognize that invader the next time it comes into your body. So essentially what vaccines do they're just stimulating the body's natural immune defenses. Now obviously you don't want to do that by giving someone a disease. So conventional vaccines, they usually use a weakened or dead version of the pathogen. Now, this Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine is pretty clever, like you said, Amit. It's it's a a novel riff on this approach. And rather than introducing a disease-causing pathogen into the body, it uses our body's own cells to reproduce tiny bits of the virus that then provoke the body's immune response. So in this case, the vaccine contains tiny bits of the genetic code that contain the information to make the spike protein, which on the outside of the 
coronavirus that helps it get into our cells. Now, these little bits of code are called mRNA. So once they enter our body, these tiny little organelles within our cells start reading the mRNA and use it to produce these spike proteins. So it's a little bit like passing a recipe to each of our cells and getting you know, the, the organs within ourselves to make a specific meal, whereas a conventional vaccine will just put that meal straight into your body. So it uses our bodies as a kind of production mechanism. So it's, it's really quite clever and novel in that respect. The other respect in which mRNA vaccines are clever and novel is that you can make them and iterate on them really, really quickly, which is super important when you've potentially got the population of the entire world eventually to get this vaccine out to but there are still major logistical challenges from getting this vaccine from a lab to billions of people obviously so what are the challenges ahead yeah exactly and i mean that's one of the problems that we've got this slightly novel vaccine is that that's great but also it means that we haven't necessarily got the um you know supply chain to produce it we're not we're not used to making these vaccines at scale so in theory mrna vaccines are relatively quick to make so conventional vaccines are usually grown in chicken eggs and actually take it takes several weeks to grow them really with mrna vaccines all you need is a kind of biochemical soup exact um, essentially which you can brew up pretty quickly but there are a couple of major drawbacks so one is that the vaccine requires two doses three weeks apart so that means that for instance, the UK has ordered, pre-ordered 40 million doses of this vaccine. That means because we've got to um, dose people twice, that it will be about 18 million people that will actually be covered by that. Um, the other problem is that the vaccine must be stored most of the time in very, very cold conditions, so around minus 70 degrees. I think to compare that, your freezer at home is probably minus 20 degrees. This is a huge problem because we don't have a very well-established supply chain that can keep things that cold for that long. So, you know, a lab might have that kind of freezer temperature, a, you know, a big hospital or a research institute might, but GP surgeries typically don't have that, you know, those kind of facilities. And that's going to be a really, really big challenge for the developing world and and you know um there was a slide that's reported in, in science magazine which i think was from a you know a, a pfizer presentation and it showed that they basically created this kind of suitcase that was filled with dry ice to keep it um keep the vaccine cold and part of the requirements were that you only opened it twice in in 24 hours and for each time it could only remain open for one minute at each time and this is in order to stop the vaccine um degrading and i think that kind of gives you a little bit of, this, of a sense of you know how important this cold supply chain will be and potentially especially in hard to reach areas how difficult it might be to make sure we can you know keep it safe all the time so that's going to be a you know an issue that lots and lots of people are going to be thinking about very uh, closely now and working on but the potentially the hardest part of this has been solved. The logistical challenges will be a big hurdle to overcome, but they seem like the sort of things that we should be able to develop these supply chains. There's, there's a need to, so we should be able to do it. But it also highlights the need for more than one vaccine to pass clinical trials and be approved by regulators. And I think there's, there's a half dozen or more around the world that are very, very close. They're in phase three trials. They're almost where the Pfizer BioNTech vaccine is and within the coming weeks and months we should be in a position where there are multiple vaccines that behave and work in different ways have different degrees of success but might be easier to distribute might only require one dose might be better for people of certain ages or from certain ethnic backgrounds so this isn't 
the only candidate, there's an awful lot more to come. Isn't that right, Matt? Yeah, that's right. I think we can expect, if I remember correctly, I think there's maybe 11 or more that are in phase three clinical trials. And I think that it's realistic that actually the vaccines that end up being given to people might come from a range of different situations because I think the projections are that if we only try to produce this vaccine, then Pfizer might be able to produce about 1.2, 1.4 billion vaccines by the end of the year, by the end of next year, sorry. That's great, but as we know, because it takes two doses, that's a very small um, percentage of the world's population if you think you probably need to vaccinate 60 or 70% of people to ensure herd immunity. So it's quite likely that we're going to have a range of vaccines we're going to have to buy from different producers and different um, production mentalities, uh, different production methods, sorry. Um, so I think we can expect other results to be just as important over the coming weeks and we should be looking out for those. Absolutely. And there's there's another massive challenge here. It's been quite interesting to see how this story has been reported around the world. And one of the big challenges that the mainstream press, national newspapers, broadcasters, radio stations have brought to light is the concerns that people have around the safety of these vaccines, whether they should take them or not. And this all comes down to good communication and PR. You need, in order for these vaccines to be successful, a really high level of public obedience, if you like. People need to be reassured that it's safe to take these vaccines and that they should take them. And Amit, that's the second major hurdle to overcome. There's the, there's, well, third, there's the vaccine development, there's the logistics, and then there's possibly the world's biggest PR operation that now needs to swing into action. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, so this week I've been speaking to kind of public health experts and some of the people that are working on the communications around any kind of vaccine rollout. So the kind of tricky comms and PR side of things. Now, this is something that in the UK in particular, we haven't really been nailing over the last few weeks and months, despite spending up to £130 million of public money on PR and comms since the start of the year. There's been a big controversy in the UK around the head of the vaccine task force spending uh, £670,000 on a boutique PR firm, for instance, and it's not entirely clear what that money's gone and been spent on. Uh, But what we'll see now over the next few months is that PR will become vitally, vitally important uh, to make sure that they get the, the communications around this vaccine rollout right. So in the past, we've talked a lot about, um, you know, anti-vaxxers or uh, vaccine hesitant people. But when it comes down to it, we, we've got, you know, seven, seven billion or so, seven and a half billion people on the planet. We need to probably vaccinate 60 to 70 percent of them. Do we have any sense of how many of those people we should be able to vaccinate and who we might have problems with? Yeah. So as you as you talked about already, Matt, obviously, you know, say we can actually physically get a vaccine to all those people, that doesn't necessarily mean they're all going to be willing to take them. So a, a, a kind of recent global survey of more than 13,000 people across 19 countries revealed widespread vaccine hesitancy. So overall, 71.5% of people said they would take a vaccine, but 14% said they would completely refuse it outright. And another 14% said they would be hesitant to take it. Um, that really varies across countries as well. So in the UK, 36% of people said they are uncertain or unlikely to be vaccinated against COVID. In the US, that figure rises to 51%. So, you know, if you're looking at that kind of 70% figure as a target of herd immunity in some countries, we may well fall below that if these people that are hesitant can't be convinced or persuaded to, to take a vaccine. Now, according to a recent report from the Royal Society, there are five kind of key factors that determine vaccine uptake. So the first one is complacency. You can be fairly sure that people won't be complacent about COVID. After all, it's kind of dominated our lives for so long. Um, Another one is sociodemographic characteristics, which again is kind of 
what we talked about just now of different countries or different groups of people having different confidence in a vaccine but two of the main ones are kind of trust and information so and those are kind of the two areas where you know a clear strategy will be really important up until this point i think people were kind of following especially what the government was saying but there there was a lot of misinformation especially at the beginning at one point people were told they didn't need need masks that masks would make things worse the kind of messaging across the board has been a bit confused and there's been a lot of u-turns i mean how do you think it will be possible to build public trust back again so that they will be willing to take this vaccine and trust that the government knows what they're doing um, when it comes to to dealing with this crisis? Because up until now, it's not been entirely convincing. Yeah, I think so. The people I spoke to, so Heidi Larson, who's head of the kind of vaccine um, hesitancy project, or the, the research into kind of vaccine hesitancy um, at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, um, says it's about kind of bringing people along on the journey. So you, you can't just kind of present a vaccine and say, here it is, it's finished, it's 90% effective. You've got to kind of talk them through the process of like how it was tested how it was made you know and, and then that process of deciding who gets it first and why that needs to be kind of, kind of transparent and fair so it doesn't feel like certain groups are being favored unfairly to, you know to, to get it so that's that's one really crucial thing another thing is about kind of bringing trusted figures on side that could be one way of reducing vaccine hesitancy in certain groups so that could be you know community leaders or religious leaders or celebrities that you know speak to certain demographics um, particularly if they're people that you know are, are generally quite contrarian I think about certain things I think having them on side supporting the kind of vaccine rollout could be really really powerful um, you could see in the UK this week Jonathan Van Tam uh, he's one of the UK's kind of senior health advisors talking about how he would be first in the queue if, for a vaccine if he could be you know saying that you know if it was ethically right for him to be the front of the queue he would be and he's really just trying to give that sense that he's confident in the vaccine and that it works and that it's safe. You can see the flip side of that, though. We've, we've had around, uh, the, the pandemic's been around for nearly a year now, we've seen a number of celebrities um, boosting conspiracy theories around links between coronavirus and 5G or anti-vax conspiracy theories, stuff related to QAnon. And, and these are household names, people that are on national TV, really well-known celebrities. So while there's a huge onus for government and um, the scientific community to use celebrities to try and show that this is the thing that people should be doing, there's the pressure on the other side to try and stop celebrities and social networks from spreading the counter, well, it's not even a view, from spreading the conspiracy theory that you shouldn't take this vaccine because it's part of some sort of Illuminati blood sacrifice plot. But we're already seeing a little bit of that confusion if you like and this is what conspiracy theories are born out of the confusion around some of the early news of the Pfizer vaccine and it's vitally important that there aren't any u-turns there aren't any communication foul-ups because this is now a case of kind of going head down full pelt towards getting as many people vaccinated as possible and we can't have the sort of hiccups with eye tests and Barnard Castle that we had from the government over the last few months. Yeah, the, the the flow, I think, of information is going to be really, really important. Um, and actually, you know, as Matt alluded to earlier, be- because of that, the way that Pfizer presented its results in a simple press release without a lot of the kind of detail underlying it is a little bit of a problem. So while the headline figure was great and we saw this kind of kind of rise in the stock market and things like that, that's not great in terms of what happens next because, you know, eventually they'll have to publish more results and those results may contradict slightly the 
you, you know the press release that they've just sent out so you know even if the efficacy drops from 90 percent in the currently published figures to 80 percent that's still a change that's going to cause confusion for people and as matt said you know there's 11 other competing vaccines and it's likely that we're going to be using a mixture depending on what's available to people and the way that the news is kind of filtering out one trial at a time you know you might get a situation where you know uh, a vaccine a particular vaccine is seen as the vaccine that you should get and you might see people refusing to take other vaccines even though there's no scientific basis for that just because of the way the news has been trickling out uh, it might make it hard for members of the public to develop a kind of clear picture of what vaccines are out there how they work and who is getting them first so it's really really important that uh, and, and obviously you don't want you don't want to stop companies from releasing good news but i think it's important that they are aware of the kind of impact that that could have on the rollout of the vaccines when they eventually arrive and of course there's the very real problem that something could happen that we wouldn't want to like you said the efficacy could could drop or we realize that actually it's it's not as good as it was or as we saw with the oxford AstraZeneca trial that there were some um, what appeared to be adverse re- responses and then they paused the expe- uh, they paused the study and then they realised they were probably unrelated so they started them again so you can tell they're cautious but but things can go wrong which is why we do these trials so so what happens what do you what should companies do or, or how should we communicate the science when something unexpected does happen yeah so this is one of the, the, the biggest things right with with the rollout of the scale you know even even if the vaccine is 100 percent perfect and there's no complications uh, or side effects with anyone it, it's almost inevitable when you're vaccinating this many people particularly people who are already old or you know already have underlying health conditions it's almost a statistical inevitability that some of them will fall ill shortly after receiving a vaccination for some completely unrelated reason so um Heidi Larson, who I spoke to, you, pointed to the case of Natalie Morton, who was a 14-year-old who died um, in 2009, just a few hours after being given the HPV vaccine. Um, and her case, it was a really, really sad, sad case, but it sparked kind of national concerns about whether this kind of jab was safe. Uh, and it turned out that she actually did have an underlying condition. She had a, a tumour that had kind of spread across her, her lungs. So that was the real cause of her death. But because of the timing, it looked like she had um, died, you know, after taking the HPV vaccine, which wasn't true, but you know that kind of doubt could be really, really dangerous. In the um, during you know as the COVID vaccine gets rolled out, uh, particularly because there's so much attention on it. So every little kind of minor complication, like the Oxford uh, vaccine being paused, for example, the trial will get a huge amount of scrutiny on it, and those bits of scrutiny can sometimes then become detached from the truth and kind of float off and become conspiracy theories on their own or become fuel for the fire. What you're saying is that if there are holes in information or a lack of information or the information flow isn't as streamlined as perhaps it should be, that it's in those dead spaces, those pauses, that conspiracy theories start to spread. And around vaccinations, obviously, the most powerful conspiracy theory is the anti-vaxxer movement, if you like, which is sort of a sludge of conspiracy theories. But there's, there's problems even with that, that there are really ardent anti-vaxxers who were probably not going to change their mind but thankfully there aren't too many of them but there are what what you talked about earlier which is vaccine hesitant people who might feel that they're being pushed towards an extreme by people not taking their concerns seriously which is potentially quite a big problem yeah so on the anti-vaxxers you're right james that there is a very very small group of people that are kind of hardened conspiracy theorists who think that you know bill gates is uh, something to do with the vaccine and then they shouldn't take it because it's part of a kind of global conspiracy and all this kind of stuff. Those people are in the minority, thankfully, but there is a risk that we, you know, kind of 
uh, yeah, inadvertently kind of amplify those voices and actually you know swell the groups and you already you're already starting to see kind of some like false equivalency or you know certain celebrities kind of jumping on this as you said earlier and, and, and amplifying some of these kind of fringe uh theories theories isn't the right word but fringe views um and combine that with the kind of spread of fake news on social media that presents a real challenge so you can see how a, a case similar to the hpv vaccine case that i talked about could spread like wildfire on social media before we know what the real truth of the matter is um so research published yesterday by larson and colleagues uh, found a 6.4 percent drop in willingness to take a covid vaccine when people were exposed to some of the most frequently circulating anti-vax posts on social media um and on the other hand, it's also possible to inoculate people against conspiracy theories by plying them with the right facts. So there's going to be a really, really important kind of outreach job on social media to make sure that these rumours don't spread or that kind of good rumours or the, the truth kind of spreads in, in, in their place. Like there, there, are, um, like there are legitimate reasons to be hesitant about taking a vaccine. You know, you can be worried that it hasn't been tested enough or you can be worried that, you know, it hasn't been tested enough in your particular ethnic group or, or age category. But, you know, these are what the trials are for. That's why they do these kind of massive, massive trials. 40,000 people is not an insignificant number of people. And, you know, they, they come from all spectrums of society and all demographics. Um, but what I think is really important is that you don't demonise people that are genuinely scared and genuinely have questions. Because anti-vax is like a really unhelpful label and it and it says... What, what Larson says is that it causes this kind of extreme polarisation where you're either pro-vaccine or anti-vaccine. And if you're in the middle and you're not sure if you want to take a vaccine or not, for whatever reason, you end up getting tarred with this like anti-vaccine tag. And then once you're in that group, it's very, very difficult to kind of bring you back into the into the fold, as it were. People feel like they can't even ask a question anymore without being judged. And then that's when they kind of harden their views and they, they, they see it as a political issue rather than a, a scientific issue. Um, and... The final thing, James, as you addressed, is like I think the making sure there's no gaps that can kind of be filled by fake news or filled by rumours. Like the more you give an opportunity for rumours, uh, as as arguably the Pfizer press release did by leaving like a massive you know uh, gap of information about the, the details of, of their trial, the more you leave gaps, the more you're giving an opportunity for rumours to spread. And that's been the case throughout this whole year. You know, it's it's hyper uncertainty, it's constant uncertainty, and that's a really really perfect storm for rumour spreading. We've seen plenty of examples through the pandemic of people who have been stuck at home, scared by lockdown, scared by the virus, who haven't found a forum for their concerns to be heard in seriousness and have been pushed towards these more dangerous conspiracy theories. Now, that's that's bad when it turns into lockdown protests and, and people lashing out against um, the the um, authority and not trusting government that's that's a problem but it's a bigger problem when you have this public health issue of getting lots of people vaccinated if there is this distrust of vaccinations and people aren't able to bring up those concerns in a forum and have them properly addressed then they risk being punted towards really extreme views as you say Amit which means that we could potentially struggle to get enough people vaccinated. It's a really, really big challenge, but thankfully there are some super smart people working on it. If you've got any questions, concerns, comments, anything on the COVID-19 vaccine situation, do get in touch. Podcast at wired.co.uk. We'll do our best 
to answer anything you send our way and we'll read out a few of them on the show next week. Now after that bumper section on vaccinations we want to take a look ahead to the near future Natasha and office Christmas parties which will still happen but in a very weird way this year. Yeah, that's right. So as we wait for a coronavirus vaccine, um, obviously the pandemic has been chipping away at any semblance of normality um, when it comes to our business lives. And uh, yeah, office Christmas parties is part of that. It is the season. People are preparing. They're thinking about them. Uh, I remember my worst office Christmas party was at the Piccadilly Club um, and it was horrendous. I spent 45 minutes trying to put my coat away um, and sort of staggered out about an hour or so later to see someone quite senior screaming as she was being pushed into a taxi and went home and had a mcdonald's so um what, what was your worst ever christmas party because uh, i want to see if we can compare to some of the ones from zoom this year go on james start you'll be um, pensive <laughs> yeah a, a couple of years ago um so in the in the before times uh wired's offices are on the edge of mayfair in london um and we ended up being taken to um quite a fancy bar in mayfair where there was or at the same time there was a leaving do for um, quite an elderly gentleman who had had one too many drinks and was dancing quite embarrassingly with some very confused looking colleagues. So it was like this tiny little snapshot of this very important moment in his life and he he wasn't being his best self, um, shall we say. (laughs) And also a beer cost £15, so that made it um, even worse. Yeah, it's pretty bad if you don't have a corporate credit card. Um, Amit, how about you? Um, We had one that was on a boat on the Thames so that you couldn't leave. Uh, yeah, those are terrible. When you wanted to, you had to wait for the boat to dock. Uh, and also someone got, and on, the, on the same, at the same event, someone got put through a table, uh, a la WWE. So I like, <laughs> I was walking, I walked from one end of the boat to the other uh, and then did the same five minutes later and there was just like glass shards, there was a glass table, there was just like shards of glass all over the floor and uh, someone had been put through a table, I was told, yeah. And you were trapped on a boat. Trapped on a boat, yeah, on, on wrestling boat with uh, a bunch of drunk colleagues, yeah. <laughs> Sounds like a great Christmas party, not the worst one. It's like a sort of humble brag. Um, Matt Reynolds, <laughs> how about you? So I would have to say um, probably my worst Christmas party experience doesn't necessarily reflect on me in the best way. So I, maybe I'll let our readers kind of fill that in with their own experiences. But I would say, um, I don't know if I'm just a bit of a Scrooge, but I kind of dread Christmas party season because there's like the awkwardness of Secret Santa and then you might be next to colleagues that you don't really know and then you've got to have the vegetarian option of the meal and everyone points and laughs at your meal. So I, I don't, I, I mean, I love you guys, obviously. Um, but I'm kind of looking forward to the fact that, that uh, this might be replaced by something virtual where I can just, oh, no, my internet connection is not very good. I've got I've to go, guys. Is that bad of me? Yeah, so Matt Reynolds, I expect that you were the one who put someone through the table, given given the lack of, <laughs> lack of any evidence. That but, was me. Um, but no, I mean, yeah, you're you're not uh, going to be exempt from a Christmas party. We will judge and laugh and point and do secret Santas, but it will be different this year than any other time. It is natural uh, during a global pandemic and in the midst of a second national lockdown to wonder if there are going to be any Christmas parties at all this year. And if they do take place, whether they're going to be unbelievably sad Zoom parties where we all sort of sit alone in our living rooms, maybe wearing Christmas jumpers, sort of watching a screen. And it would be kind of like any other meeting, only worse in every possible way. 
totally dire stuff. But no, we did some digging this week into what companies are planning to offer this year, and it is far from uninteresting. There are some really weird and wonderful things going on in the realm of office Christmas parties this year, and companies are not letting the pandemic stand in the way of a rip-roaringly good time. Having read this article already, I think you're somewhat overselling it. But but go on, <laughs> what is in store? For All right, us well this let me year? let me paint you a picture. Let me, come on, come on, James, I'll paint you a picture. It's the night of your office Christmas party, and your taxi driver is telling you to do shots on your way to the venue. When you arrive, a doorman checks your name against the list, teases you about your Santa hat, takes your coat, and under. 45 minutes inside the sprawling venue you search room by room for your co-workers that you actually like you have a bit of a dance and you run into your boss in the loo that bit maybe take that away don't want to do that all all of this though is completely virtual and your company is hired out out of work actors to play taxi drivers bartenders and coat checks just like in a game attendees can navigate through a map of virtual rooms such as a comedy club a bingo hall a jazz cafe as well as a smoking area and loo james you're shaking your head but if it sounds unbearable don't worry it's not the only option event planning companies have pivoted to virtual offerings um basically selling remote versions of everything from karaoke to escape rooms to murder mysteries and drag shows to make it feel a little bit more special because that still might sound a bit dire um, and to use up that annual Christmas party tax break people will be supplying their staff to get absolutely slaughtered so you won't know the difference between what's real and what's virtual anyway you will be past caring so we've got supplies for virtual cocktail masterclasses gingerbread house making kits cheese tastings and shared cooking lessons one company's even offering a bespoke great british bake-off starring former contestants so you can get stuck in and do something a bit weird this year I mean, I don't mean to be the curmudgeon that I, I started off this section by being, but I mean, do we need, why do we need a pretend doorman? Why do we need to search through the, the, like, the website to find our colleagues? Like, why, it sounds like we're recreating all of the rubbish parts of the Christmas party. What I want to know is, is there going to be a cheery man in a big red coat? Will I get a present? And then can I just go home straight after that? But I am already at home, so can I see it's, Santa from the comfort of my own flat? <laughs> it's a very British response it's sort of like anything that sounds like it's a bit lame you're like no that's lame I don't want to do that that sounds horrible there is no Santa um, by the way sorry for podcast listeners but there will be no corporate Santas because they're apparently not very popular in, in the comp- corporate party scene so companies told Nicole Kobe our writer that they might add Santa onto a package deal to follow something more spectacular like a magician now it turns out I didn't know this but it's, it looks like all four of us absolutely hate Christmas parties I've been to Christmas parties with magicians honestly you avoid them they're terrible I've never met a good magician what I stand by this genuinely I've never, no, I've never met a good party magician. Well, All I they do magicians. is sort of strange things with cards. Why? No, I don't want that. That's that's not, no, it's not fun. But I tell you what is more fun, classically festive options. So back in the early days of lockdown, farms and petting zoos were offering Zoom calls with their animals. So it's no surprise that the same exact thing is happening with the reindeer. And that does warm my cold, cold heart. So Nick Dean, who's the co-owner of Woodbine Farms, was saying that he's been contacted for virtual tours of the stables as part of uh, office parties for corporates. Though, as yet, there's been no requests for the antlered animals to take part in Zoom calls. So yeah, he said that because of the 
previous work during lockdown and the demand from especially families, schools, all that kind of thing, they've already got the kit and people want to see cute things and so that they're ready for it. But everything doesn't have to be Christmas related. So if you think that sort of doing Santa related things, looking at reindeers is a bit cringe, you don't really enjoy Christmas parties anyway, you can just forego it and do something else instead. So people are doing VR paintball, um, a virtual CSI, not everything has to be sort of holiday themed. So there's this um, theatre company you spoke to called Swamp Motel that's getting holiday bookings, which is co-founded by some creative associates who pivoted their spooky kind of theatre to show to a virtual experience that starts in Zoom but takes players through an investigation into a missing person and they're poking around different corners of the internet where clues have been left waiting. So you don't necessarily need to, you know, be looking at a reindeer or talking to Santa or watching a disappointing magician to have some fun. You can spend money on, on other things and some companies are doing that. I'm not I'm not entirely sure I would, I would want a, a Zoom call with a reindeer. What what would you say? <laughs> like well, how you would, wouldn't how would you that just go? watch it? It would be like Big Brother only reindeer, right? Like you just sort of watch the reindeer, what they do. I guess that's the way it goes, right? I mean <laughs> I don't think they would sort of because it's animal abuse, wouldn't it? If if they sort of force it to put on a show or something, that's not right. You just have to sort of put up with whatever the animal happens to be doing at that very moment right but i mean it sounds it sounds thrilling that sounds like a great great christmas party um so i'm I'm probably going to still hold out hope for an in-person trip to a park or the pub or something you know obviously the the lockdown is supposed to end on december the 2nd here in the uk is there any chance that we won't have to spend our christmas party watching reindeer footage on on zoom there is so obviously under the current tier three nationwide lockdown rules all in-person events are pretty much banned but if things do change at the beginning of december some things might be allowed so a cabinet office spokesperson couldn't say refused to clarify if an office party would have been an allowable work event back in october um the, the the hint is that christmas will be different this year but companies are kind of holding out hope that something will happen that will allow people to do at least some form of christmas party so that's one reason why this venue called cctv venues is still offering in-person events including this wonderful package which i have to say is ridiculously named baubles of six with staff which is basically split into government approved groups of six in different meeting rooms that are linked up via video conference and staff are dressed as elves and they'll ferry gifts and treats between the rooms and the idea apparently is yet to have any takers surprisingly um but 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 that's partly they say due to the lack of clarity about what will be allowed in december versus what was allowed in october so it could be the case that we're all sitting down in sort of socially distanced groups of six or fewer um in in certain venues that would be emptied and and socially distanced for for the for this specific purpose and exchanging gifts in kind of a responsible way and eating our own dinners and kind of a strange separated thing like there'll be no cracker pulling probably and there'll be no you know drunken snogging (laughs) in the background none of that will be allowed I'm sure the elves would intervene but um but there is a huge amount of confusion as to whether that will take place or not so that's why we've seen this sort of um surge of of interest in in virtual parties I think a lot of um this might seem very silly but a lot of people been through a really really bad year and companies are aware that you know if you don't give people something it's it's going to 
kind of make them feel a little bit worse during the holidays, especially if, if you know, they've, they've had a bit of a tough um, time at home feeling a bit isolated. So, yeah, I, it is one of those scenarios where may, maybe something is better than nothing. Um, although if you do hate Christmas parties, which seems to be the case over here, maybe a, a time of silence, a Christmas hamper that's delivered with no um, expectation of social interaction might be the better option for some companies. <laughs> I think, yeah, at, at the outset, I would have said that these virtual parties sound horrendous and, that, and they do still sound horrendous. But I think um, it is still important for people to get together and make an effort to sort of mark the festive season if they if they so wish. And it's certainly better than um, going all in on a potential super spreader event, regardless of what the lockdown rules in the part of the world where you are. If there is a high prevalence of the virus, then getting people together in a poorly ventilated space to talk loudly and drink probably isn't a good idea. Um, so maybe think, even if the virtual option sounds horrendous, that it might be better than taking part in a potential super spreader event. Podcast at wired.co.uk. What are your office party Christmas plans, virtual or non-virtual? Let us know how you're going to mark the festive season in awkward fashion with your colleagues. Time for a couple of your emails before we finish the show. Greg writes in to the podcast to say that he enjoyed the last episode and we were talking about private flights. He remembered that the borders are closed in Hungary, which is where he's from, which means that people aren't able to fly abroad. But to fight against this problem, a company called Smartwings has done a national flight which just flies around Hungary and then lands again. Um, he found the news funny and he said that he'd quite like to let us know about it. I think there's been a few airlines that have done this. Qantas and Singapore Airlines, I think, um, have booked out quite large numbers of people onto planes that just take off, fly around for a bit and land. It seems like a completely unnecessary thing to do in terms of, uh, again, super spreader events, but also the climate crisis. That's still a thing. Um, so just flying planes around for fun why do it? But there we go. Um, people are weird and so are airlines. Uh, we've got one more email. Um, Natasha? Yeah, so Mark has written in uh, about the Rubik's Cube discussion that we had last week. So he was saying, um, I wanted to let Natasha, that's me, know that my nine-year-old daughter also decided to teach herself how to solve a Rubik's Cube in lockdown, the first one, and managed it in two days. She even managed to teach me, but that took a couple of weeks longer. He sent in a video um, with her permission to show me how this was done. Um, now, I brought my Rubik's Cube with me uh, to the podcast to show you because it is genuinely uh, not even close to done. I uh, came close to throwing it in the bin the other day, uh, but I decided no, that is not the way that um, Rubik's Cubes will be solved uh, and it's a bit of a cowardly way to end this. So instead, I am purchasing, which will arrive soon, the book You Can Do the Cube, which is by this guy called Patrick Bossert. Um, he sold 1.5 million copies in 1981. He was a 12-year-old boy. This little boy will teach me how to do a Rubik's Cube uh, just the same as this video, which I will probably watch a million times of Mark's daughter uh, trying to do that. And hopefully with those two bits of help, I will complete a Rubik's Cube by myself by the end of lockdown. Um, I'll keep you posted with riveting information about <laughs> Rubik's Cube. But so far, I'm only able to complete it by following very specific steps and aren't able to do a single move by myself. So I like the fact that you, you bought the Rubik's Cube onto the podcast, even <laughs> though this is an audio medium where people cannot see the cube. It's um, never but set it, me is, back. it is there and it, it does look 
very incomplete. I can barely <laughs> see any matching colours on any sides, which so is almost bad. impressive in itself. Um, we'll check it again next week. Um, and uh, if Natasha does manage to complete it, um, we'll get her to tweet out a picture uh, so that you can all uh, see her moment of triumph. Thank you very much for listening. As always, do get in touch, podcast.wired.co.uk. We love hearing from you. Send us anything that's on your mind or any of your questions or queries about stories that we've talked about on this show or any of the shows that you've been listening to recently. Thanks so much for listening, as always, and we'll see you again next week. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Bye.